try to find a balance between the developer and the community and try to see if we can make those two match. Sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. And when they can't, you hope that your project doesn't have so many entitlements <laughs> that you need relief everywhere and you need to start giving up things. Welcome to Shovel Ready, here to inspire, educate, and entertain you by breaking down the real estate development process. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend and leave a positive review to help us attract more quality guests. And now, your hosts, Jason Chow and Lynn Curry. All right, welcome everybody. Welcome to Shovel Ready, the best damn podcast on real estate development out there. My name is Jason Shao. Welcome, everybody. And with me today is my fantabulous co-host, Lynn Curry. What's going on in your negative? The wood, hello. hello. Well, we're actually getting sort of a winter here. So uh, the three yeah, days that Austin gets. Yeah. So I've been wearing a heavy coat and running the heater and I just don't know what to do with myself. Yeah. It's 62 degrees. That's so tough in Austin, isn't it? <laughs> But it's a cold 62. I know, just kidding. Yeah, it's like, I remember I was like, the three days of drop below 50 and people freak out, don't know what how to drive and either way yeah. too fast or way too slow. <laughs> so, or the drizzle. And the bridge is made ice over because it's 50 degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But cool. Well, I'm super excited today for our guest. Fernando has, we've been working on a project together as well. And this guy, have you ever seen The Matrix, Lynn? The movie? Of course, Not the actual Matrix, seen? but... Yeah, you know, you know how like you know the scene in the corridor, and there's this guy with the, the key master, and he's just like telling Neo, "Hey, okay, go to this, go through this door, go through that door." That's mm-hmm. how I feel like Fernando is for for me or for other projects. It's just like cut through the bureaucracy maze that is City Hall. So I'm really looking skill. forward to the yeah. I'm really looking forward to the conversation <laughs> we have today. That's um, the first time I've ever heard that comparison. That, that's- <laughs> You may need to yeah, use that. Can you, the first yeah. two times, the first two times you can use it for free, then you have, you have to start. After that, there's a royalty fee, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Fernando, start wherever you like. Tell us about your background or how did you get into this this line of work? So, I've always been involved in kind of architecture and, and building. I would say at, at a young age. You know, even when we we're kids, our summers uh, while we we're in, you know, junior high, high school, my my uncle and my my dad would always say, "Well, you know, this summer instead of going anywhere fun, Disneyland or Magic Mountain or you know, going to the mountains or camping, we would remodel a kitchen or we would remodel a bathroom or put concrete in the backyard so we could park cars." From a young age, I kind of learned you know, to kind of work with my hands and and try to make things a little nicer than they were when we found them. And so in high school, I took drafting classes and I went on to uh, college and, you know, obviously I I majored in architecture, had a lot of influence. And then, you know, I used to work for for a company that had a retired zoning administrator. He was a big influence in me. And he would tell me, you know, why do you want to design a building when you can influence an entire community? And I would sit there and say, you know, as time kind of went on, I started butting heads with, with, with professors because every time they would say, you know, we want you to design this beautiful building and make it shiny or tall or skinny and flat or make it wild and as creative as you like, I would remember the retired zone administrator and he would always say these things cost developers these things that whether they're big tall shiny you know there's environmental review process there's a parking count that you're going to have to dig uh you know two three stories of of parking structures or you know go up for parking structures and so you have to take in consideration that the you know these regulations that have to do with the design of the building and, and, and the occupancy load. So 
as time went on, I just, you know, I started butting heads. I would say, well, Professor X, you know, we, we, it's a beautiful building, but it doesn't make sense because then the developers aren't going to choose me as the architect because they're going <laughs> to say it's a beautiful building, but it's not buildable. And so my thought went from where can I be more effective? Is it going to be as an architect or is it going to be as someone who tries to figure out what could be built, what can't be built? Or if we skewer a building a bit, we'll meet certain definitions of some regulations with some persuasion, we can get it built and, you know, have a happy client, have a happy community. And we we're all kind of happy and it's not as difficult to get through the approval process. And so that's been, you know, I, I started this in 97 or I started in this field about 97. So it's been now 23 years or so I've been doing this. Well, so today we're going to get into all the nitty gritty of the different approval process, similar to different components that you touched on, you know, neighborhood hearings, going to dealing with the cities and different designs or studies that you have to do, such as traffic study, SQL and all that. So let's start from the basic, though. We can use LA as an example or maybe talk broadly speaking. And Lynn, feel free to share some of Austin's quirks here and there as well. For a project to be approved to get to get entitlement and then actually to get the permit to build it. What does that process look like? Very cumbersome for someone who, you know, is a relatively new developer. It's very overwhelming. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard developers who go in and they get conflicting information from city staff, you know, so they, they, they call me and you know, I kind of give them just the basics, you know, on, on just what I know, because obviously you can't, you know, there's only so much information. You can yeah. Get. So that, I mean, let's stay on the basics and, you know, there's certain, certain major checkpoints, right? Like, yes, sometimes the city within the city, they give you different guidelines or, you know, different cities have different steps. But for example, our small lot project in, in Silver Lake, what was the first thing that we had to do there? I believe when you guys came to me, you guys have did your homework pretty good. You guys had a very good architect who knew what she was doing. She has a lot of experience in the city of LA. And I think the, the you know, we went back, we, the, the, the subdivision process for small lots is now, if you've done one, you've, you're, you're pretty familiar with how to do the next one. You know, the thing with your project, because you're, you're on a hillside, was trying to figure out the height of the building, right? So we had to kind of have a... The, the track map for it and how the, how the units are going to lay it out. Right? Correct. And so, you know, in your project, you had to step the, 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 the project up the hill. And so the way the city measures height is, you know, they take the overall, they go five feet out from the ground elevation and they pop up the height from the topo, not from the actual building height. So your building height could be 45 feet, but based on the topo, you're 55 feet. And so you have to make that dis- distinction. And so in your case, we looked at it and we said, no, you're within the height with exception to, I believe was your guardrails. And so there was a definition in there that says, well, certain things are left, you know, we'll accept over in height if it fits this criteria. But then in your your case too, you had what the what what the zoning has is it's called a Q qualification, right? At some point, the well, that's that's yeah. Let's not get too bogged down on the details just yet. I mean, we can we can go real deep down the rabbit hole, but I just want to highlight kind of the major points first, like tenant track map, what to do next, and then at what point do we, you know, the difference between ministerial and buy right. I want to touch on that a little bit. So 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 even if you look at a uh, like a tentative map, right? It's it's a they they do consider it an entitlement. You do have to file application to the city, but there's certain things. There's the state map act allows for subdivision of property, and because of the small lot came in as a as an exception to the zoning code, the combination of those two allows your your the design and the layout of your of your project to move forward. State map act says. There's, I think it's three performance standards that you got to meet, three three or four. And they, they necessarily won't be able to den- deny it if you meet those four items. 
So they'll say, if you have water, if you have sewer, if you have public power, and if you're adjacent to a roadway. So say if you, you meet those that criteria, you can do a subdivision. Hey, Jason and Fernando, why don't you, why don't you back up just even a hair more mm-hmm. and tell people why they would want to take a lot, an infill lot, and subdivide it? Because I think that's, that's, an, that's an important thing for people to understand because when you are buying something and looking at the best and highest use, that's actually a really tool in your pocket, if you, a really great tool in people's pocket if they understand it and then understand kind of what we're going through now, which is what it takes and how much does it cost generally. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I would say to do a subdivision, I mean, it just depends how you want to use a property, right? If you want to, as a developer, go in and and you can profit indefinite with a, an apartment building, right? You go in there, you build 25 units and you'll have rent for those 25 units indefinite. But if you build, I would say a, a neighborhood would is probably best served by having condominiums or small lot, right? You go in there and you say, well, this is a, a, a kind of a transition between renters and homeowners, right? You set up a, a subdivision, you get to sell whether it's airspace or it's physical lots. And, and the city of LA have a small lot, which means they'll, they'll, they won't necessarily give you the airspace, even though it does belong to you. They're actually creating actual lots. And then you're giving your neighbors, so if you own the first lot, you're giving all your other neighbors the right to cross over your lot with their cars or pedestrian access or utilities. And so those are all reciprocal easements where it says, well, we all own our individual lots like you would say in any kind of um, single family neighborhood. The only difference is that, you know, we're a little closer together, we're taller. And, you know, for me, I kind of like that idea where, you know, a lot of these have rooftop decks, you have a nice view, you know, and it all belongs to you. You know? Yeah. I mean, like for, I mean, zoning in LA, you know, I think ultimately there's a housing shortage, right? And for some of these zonings, they, they can build more units. And I think what, what I'm hearing Fernando say is, you know, it's, it's kind of, some of the work that I have to do or before he gets involved is the developer are the developers are using their knowledge of the local market and making a judgment to say, okay, is this more of a condo or apartment market or the, you know, the people that live in this neighborhood or the small lot, or, you know, there are these condo townhouse that they're a little bit more family friendly. So in, the, in our case, we made that call because there's an elementary school that's just down the street. We wanted to, be a more family oriented type of type of project. And, you know, there's already an apartment next to us. So for the variety, that's kind of why we went that way. So, you know, we did a lot of design work, you know, feasibility study while we were under contract, we closed on the property and then we had some preliminary design and then we started bringing Fernando in to help us with the actual, you know, the, the approval with, you know, sending out the radius maps and dealing with the, the neighborhood councils, getting their feedback, incorporating their feedback, and actually, you know, going back to the cities as well. So we'll continue to kind of go through some of these these checkpoints or these these gates, the big ones that, you know, regardless of where you are, or what type of project, you probably deal with some some kind or some level of these these things. So yeah, yeah, so- yeah. yeah. I was just gonna, I'm just gonna just real a couple more things on this topic because you know, our listeners are going to be from all over the place and every city is a little bit different. Um, often we do it too. We do small lot or we do infill lots and subdivide them. We've got a little bit of a different situation where nobody in their right mind would take a, a multifamily lot and subdivide it into single family because they're so hard. The multifamily is so hard to come by here right now. But what we do a lot of is take large lots and subdivide them in order to get more density. So the way our land development code works, we can only put on, say, a single family lot, and there's different levels of single family lots, but let's use SF3 as the example because it's the most relevant to this conversation. You can only put two dwelling units on that lot, and it can be either a shared wall duplex, and then you can either rent both sides or sell both sides, or you can do a house and an ADU. And if you've got a big lot, by subdividing it, now you've got four dwelling units on it assuming you've only went down to two lots to two lots right or if you go three lots now you've got six on it 
Now we can't do, Fernando, what you were talking about, which is street front and then everybody walks across the lot to get to somebody else's lot. We don't, we don't get to do that. We've, they've got to have street front access no matter how we do it. We can do flag lots, which for folks who don't know, if you're looking at your plat map, it, one of the lot looks like a flag, right? So you've got the driveway that goes to the back of, say, the front lot, and then the other lot over here. But we don't get to do what you guys do, which is cross people's lots with anything. Yeah. So it's just, so for folks out, out there kind of in the world listening to this, it's a great tool to figure out, like I was saying, best and highest. You have to know what goes on in your city and how it's used in your city, but it, it can be a great tool. But you, again, we'll, we'll get into this later, I'm sure, but you also have to figure out if it makes sense because it also costs a lot more. Right. Correct. And, yeah. and you know, it's funny that, that you kind of bring that up. That So in LA, what I have found over the years is, and it, it, we're becoming a little more you know, used to the fact that we're a pretty dense urban city. I think a lot of neighborhoods felt, especially in the Valley, would feel, well, we're, we're more of a suburban area. We don't really want tall condos. You know, we, we're building, I was working on a, on, a, on a condominium project and it was about 58 units or so. And it was a, a four-story building. One of the neighbors came and said, well, we really don't want this high rise here. And I said, well, it's a four-story building. High rises, I believe, start at 10 stories, maybe eight. And she says, no, she goes, this looks like a New York tenement. We don't want that here. You should take this project and build it in downtown LA. And I said, well, so, you know, when you get sometimes those comments, you say, well, I, I may not be able to win her over, <laughs> but she's put that out there. And so now I have to kind of ease people's, I guess, tension, right? Is this going to be this what she's saying. And we would say, well, you know, it's a, a Santa Barbara Spanish design. It, it, you know, it's only four stories. If we compare that to our neighbors, they're at 32 feet. We're only 45 feet, you know? So the difference in height is, you know, we're not blocking the sun as another neighbor said, you know, and, you know, we're providing home ownership or doing X, Y, and Z. And, 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 you know, we kind of go through a litany of, 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 you know, chip marks and say, here's what, wh how it's going to benefit you. So I think the city, what they did was say, well, we have to say, you know, or at least come up with a zoning code that says we used to be a suburban city, right? LA is known for cars, right? There's music that says, you know, no one walks in LA because everyone, you know, jumps in their car and goes two blocks down to the store. But if you've ever been to, to places like New York, I mean, I, I've been there several times and I think I've walked 20, 30 blocks without mm -hmm. even thinking about it. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, the city kind of came in, you know, kind of rightly so and said, well, we could take a multifamily zone property and for people who want to buy single family homes, we'll give you kind of a, a marrying of two concepts, right? You have a single family home that's three stories. We'll give you a rooftop deck and you will give you neighbors that are a few feet away from you. And so you'll get the multifamily feel in a single family lot. And we'll, you know, but, but even these small lots, you can't just put them anywhere. It has to have certain underlying zoning already. And so it's, it, you know, I can't put a, a small lot in an R1 zone used to be you could do it in an R2 zone, but they updated the, the, the regulations. And so now it's the, the least or the, the smallest zone or densed zone. I believe it's R1. And then from there, it goes all the way up to, you know, R4. But sometimes in R4, you say, well, if I could put per, I think it's 400 square feet per unit. Why am I going to do a single family home? <laughs> You're going to cram that in with as many units as you can as a developer, right? So, you know, I think that they found a way to kind of help communities that were used to single family homes transition a little over into multifamily. And so, you know, I think they did a pretty good job. Whether that lasts because of the TLCs, the, the, the transit-oriented projects that the city just passed or passed a few years back, it's more beneficial to do those. And so it's, you know, small lots are, are they're still around, they're still being developed, but I think that that may 
take a backseat to TLC. Oh. So why do some projects need to go through a neighborhood, neighborhood hearing and some don't? I would say all, they all do. Any entitlement, it was done because I believe in 90, 1999 or so, when the city of LA was having an issue with the San Fernando Valley. San Fernando Valley was trying to secede from the city of LA because they felt they had no representation in, in City Hall. And so City Hall's solution was to stop the secession, was to create more, I guess, community voices that talk directly to City Hall. So that's how the neighborhood councils came into effect. City, the city said, well, we're going to revamp this instead of just having neighborhood groups come out and have 30 of them oppose a project. We'll have an official neighborhood council that the city recognizes as the voice of the community. And so they certified all these neighborhood councils throughout the city of LA. And so now you have these groups. And so what the politicians usually do is the city councilmen, what they do is that they'll say, we, we, we love your project, Jason. We want to help you. We think it's a, it's a good thing for the community. Did you go to the neighborhood council and did, did, did they support your project? And if you say yes, then the councilman will most, most likely support your project. If they say no, then you're going to have to do a lot of convincing or have a consultant that understands the zoning code pretty well. In your Rowena project, we had such a case where the, the neighborhood council wasn't in support. And the councilmen, um, I, I don't remember if they were or they, I think they were kind of neutral. But because we are a buy right project and, and our only obstacles were two. One was a, the Subdivision Map Act, which we met all the requirements, so they couldn't deny us the subdivision itself. And the other was density. And so while we met the density of the zoning code by like, I think we built six, what was it, six or nine units? Six units. Six units. And so we did six units, and I think the density allowed for about 25. So, you know, there's certain things that the city says, well, if we're going to deny Jason's project, we have to deny him for a, a legal reason. We can't just deny him because the community doesn't want it, right? There has to be some type of relief that we're giving him. And in this case, he's not asking for any relief other than there was that little small uh, height issue that we had, and we were able to prove that other neighbor, other projects in the vicinity had asked for the same thing and they were approved. So the city really has to have something that's either public safety, public health, or, or some type of, pub, really not a public nuisance, but something that kind of is really with safety and health. And your project didn't meet any of those checkpoints. And so the city said, well, you know, it's kind of a buy-right project. We're gonna just go ahead and approve it. And I've had those projects in the past where communities fight me. And, you know, I do have some developers who get very nervous and, and feel as though I didn't punch back too much at the hearing. And I have to tell the developers, you know, sometimes it's not worth it. You have a buy right project. If you fight, you're going to just, you know, they're already angry, the community. So you, you're not going to win any, you know, anyone over, but your project is buy right. So the city is not going to look at this and say, it's controversial, so therefore we're going to deny it. They have to say something like, well, we'll approve the subdivision, but we won't approve the variance for his relief of instead of having 20 parking spaces, he needs to provide 25. So we'll approve your project, but you have to provide all the parking and you have to figure it out. And so that's how sometimes we rework it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, these are all all kind of back to like, the, the global picture, the macro picture, these are all really great points because when when somebody is, they've got a lot now or they're thinking of buying a lot, what they first need to know is what can they legally do on the lot, right? right. By right, to your point. And is that enough? But then sometimes there's an overlay that just because by right, you could have done 25 units on that lot, there may have been something else that got in there like the parking that you couldn't have done 25 units. So just because people need to understand that just because in, in our world, that's the zoning. Just because the zoning says you can do this much doesn't mean you actually can. Correct. And so people need to know bare minimum without just by going through the process, no matter how painful it may be and how confusing it may be and how long it may take, just by going through the process, what am I going to get out of it? 
now what's my gravy on top, my cherry on top, whatever, whatever euphemism we want to, we want to use. And do we want to swing for the fences and go for those things? Because that just adds more to the project. And I think those are, those are really important things to understand because I can't tell you how many times I get phone calls from people. And I do, I do different work than Fernando does, but I play sort of in this space. But I get these calls from people and they're like, oh, I've got this lot and I can do X, Y, and Z on it. And I was like, well, yes and no. (laughs) It says you can do X, Y, and Z, but here are all these other things that are going to prevent you from doing exactly what you're saying, but here's what you can do. And and I think it's important for people to go and understand that and, and usually understand that fairly early in a project because then they can say, okay, worst case scenario is this. Now let's see if we can do what I really want to do. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot to, to negotiate, you know, the, and I think that the city council or city staff too, they're, they are, it just, it's a negotiation. They're trying to find a good balance and showing that they did, they do and did listen to the neighbors and their comments. And there are times where, you know, yeah, like the, the neighbors are just, they're out with their pitchforks and, you know, yeah. that's why Fernando has to come into to make the case or think creatively about whether it's parking or whatever studies to say, Hey, this is, this is okay. This is, you know, fitting within the context of the neighborhood. You know, I, 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 it's funny, Lynn's comment, she mentioned earlier about by just doing the math, right. You say I could build based on this square footage of this, of this land, I could build so many units. And I had a, I think one of the best examples of, of, of that I that that kind of calculation, right? I had a, a client who came in, he said, well, based on the count, we can do 77 units or single family homes. So he hired a civil engineer. Well, this is before I came in. He hired a civil engineer. They designed 71 or 75 R1 lots that were about 5,000 square feet each. The this was an area in the in the San Fernando Valley that was that that had uh, what's called RA and A1 zoning. So these are big estate type of lots. And so the civil designed these streets and the streets didn't really meet up with the existing street pattern that was there. It was kind of cookie cutter. And you could really see that what they did was just to maximize the amount of lots they can put in there. And so they went to the first hearing with the community and the community lost it. I mean, you know, they were yelling at them. You know, it was an auditorium packed of people and, and they went after them. I mean, they were, it was harsh. And mm-hmm. so the developer was pretty upset. They reached out to, you know, companies to work for at the time. And they said, well, what do you think? We're thinking of changing engineers and planners. What would you guys do? So at our initial meeting, I said, well, what's the, what, what do you, how many homes do you need to build? to make this project pencil out. And he says, well, we really need about 38, 39 homes. Outside of that, like you said, it's all gravy, right? Everything above the 39 units is gravy. And I said, okay. So we went back to the drawing board. We started looking at the street. It was a project that was stuck between two freeways, the 210 and the five freeway. And there was this, this one street that connected both freeways. And so I said, well, how about if we did this? How about if we took part of the property that fronted the, the street that, touched, that, that connected both freeways and we made those lots 9,000 square feet. We separated that piece of property with the, with, the, with the piece of property that went kind of west and east that was more suburban. And the first two lots, we would make those 20,000 square foot lots. So on the, as you're passing through the project, it would look like these huge, this huge estate, but the ones behind it, we would make those eleven thousand square feet. So we 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 separated both sides of the property so that the ones that you came in between the two freeways, there was just a bulb out, right? It was just one code, one cul-de-sac that went in. You went to those homes, you turned back, you couldn't access the other side of the property, and then the other piece. The one that 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 was facing the more suburban area, we were going through the notes, and there was horse riding people who said this is a horse riding community, but there was no easements that the city added anywhere in the neighborhood that had you know horse trails. So what we did was we created a horse trail that went through along through our property, 
and then through the subdivision and out into a, a channel, a city channel, flood channel, we went back to the community. We showed them that. We ended up creating, I believe, was 44 homes, did a zone change, a general plan amendment, and a subdivision. We got one yard reduction. The councilman, he didn't know about the project yet, but what the councilman was ready to do was fight us. He had <laughs> studies, exhibits. He, he went to the hearing to fight while the community went to the hearing because now it went from being, uh, they went from being against the project to now having some ownership because we sat with them and we said, what would you like to see? So in the back of our head, we knew we needed 38, 39 homes, but we knew we could fit about at least comfortably about 47, 46, 47. But at the end, based on their input, we got 44 comfortable, nice lots. And the, the, the community supported. They fought the councilman because he started off a little fiery and the community all got up one by one and said, this is what we want. And they fought it. It got approved. We had our tentative map. We had our zone change approved, our general plan amendment approved. I mean, it was a large project. And, you know, the developer was extremely happy, in which at the end of the day, that's really what you want. Because, you know, it's, it's kind of this, the, the, the best business is repeat business. And that's what, you know, at least I try to do is try to make, you know, try to find a balance between developer and the community and try to see if if we can make those two match sometimes they can sometimes they can't and when they can't you you hope that your project doesn't have so many entitlements <laughs> that you need relief everywhere and you need to start giving up things right i need to give up two units here or one unit here you know and because i need to fit parking or or now in la it's not only parking but bicycle parking that's codified so even if you're not asking for relief in parking you have to provide bicycle parking you got to kind of find a a balance and so you know it was a good example you said about yes you could build 77 units but physically what you could fit based on roads based on community what really makes sense for that area and we came up with a pretty good balance on, on on that specific project you know it's been built it's probably been sold already 10 different times. It's one of the projects that I've, I felt really happy with the outcome. It, it's just, it wasn't too many homes. And I still have, I'm sure somewhere, I still have the original 77 lots <laughs> as an example of what not to do. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's a great job for you to, you know, show that you listen to the neighbors and, you know, th- incorporate the feedback and tweak your design and still have a good concept for, for the community and for the developers. So we got these designs, we got, we went through the neighbors, we got the cities on board. What happened? What's the next hurdle? Do you, can you just go ahead and build it? And, or what, what else do you have to do at that point? So you get the city approval, which is planning, right? You have an entitlement, a subdivision, planning approves it. Now you have to go through the web of building and safety. There's more stuff you have to do, but the neighbors like it. We could go ahead and build it, right? It would be nice, (laughs) right? You get your approval on Friday, you're you're staking on, you know, Tuesday, right? (laughs) But no, you still probably, once you get a project approved, you still have to, in your instance, you have a subdivision. You have to get all those conditions cleared for the subdivision. Then you have to submit your building permit. And then the building permit comes with a, probably five, six pages of sign-offs. And in those sign-offs, you'll have, it'll have your case numbers for your subdivision. And then it'll have things like, you have to go through low impact development standards for stormwater, for roof drainage. You have to get a Bureau of Engineering. I mean, there, it's a laundry list of bureaus and departments that you have to go in there. And, and, and you, you already have a design, right? So you sit there and you say, well, this is what I'm going to build. And I say, well... We need specific details of, of what, what, what's going to be for the first 20 feet of, of the driveway. What type of material? What's the turnaround? What, what's the driveway apron, right? We got to come up with, you have dedication, fine. You have to record instruments for those dedications as, as separate from the map. You have to post bonds and you have to, you know, it, it's just, be, it's a, 
it's a, a large web of just, at least here in LA City and even, well, anywhere in LA County, anywhere in California, really. But in LA City, it's such a, a, a big web. But, you know, if you if, if there's always been a saying, if you could build in LA, you could build in Santa Monica, and you could build in, in Pasadena, you could build anywhere. <laughs> Those are the. So how long does that How long does that process take for me for you guys? And you've got the lot. You go through the the kind of the, the zoning thing that you were going through, and then from finishing that to getting a building permit. What is your time frame? It depends it, on if you're working with Fernando or not. What was that, Fernando? I mean, it's a good example though, but I bet it takes everybody a certain it's, amount of time. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is it depends. I mean, I have a friend; he's working on a project in Pasadena. He bought it in 2012. He still doesn't have entitlement. Yeah, I mean, I have a project that I've been working since 2011, and it's a simple four lot subdivision. I recorded the map. I got everything cleared. The developer doesn't even want to build the homes he just wants to do the grading now this property had a lot of issues so it died for a couple years it it was brought back we kind of went back and forth sometimes you have plan checkers who don't necessarily understand understand what you know certain things mean in, in in clearance sheets or certain conditions so in this this project what we what we had was they were saying well you need to get a clearance for a storm drain and we said, okay, well, what he understood was there was a storm drain next to our property that was an easement that went behind all the properties on the hillside. So he was trying to get us to replace that pipe. And so it took eight months of fighting one guy <laughs> for eight months. And I went to every supervisor. I went to uh, people outside his department Every time I sat with this guy, he didn't understand what his last request was. Until finally, we got that condition put away. And it was in a condition that was on the map. It was in a condition that was on a worksheet. It was a comment by a plan checker. It, it just it just all depends on how many variables, how complex yeah. or how what's I, going on. Ideally, the site, so. If from from planning approval to getting ready to start construction should be two years, ideally. I've had projects probably the fastest I've done, maybe a year and a half, pushing, you know, a year, eight months or so. But that's with constant, just every day, no pandemic, you know, cities not as busy. But once the city, the city of LA, once they get busy, it's very hard to move when the economy's just that high, you know, performing really high, everyone's building, you know, you have homeowners taking out permits, you have developers, you have big, small projects. So, you know, it it could be anywhere between a year and a half to two years on a good project, I guess, timeline. I don't know if I've had some before that, but once you get the approval, you're looking about eight months, for instance, what you just got, Jason, you're probably about eight yeah months. we just we just submit oh gosh i hope not i mean i'm hoping for six but yeah and it could be six. <laughs> but like for instance we're building a 34 unit building now we've got in everything plan checked we're ready to continue we have now taken our full architectural plan set to get restamped we dropped it off the architect dropped it off at the fire department and the fire department up until this week, he dropped it off about a month ago. This week, the supervisor responded and said, your plan checker is coming back to the office on the 21st. <laughs> this is just for a restamp. <laughs> this is, uh, we've paid all the fees. We've already done all our plan checks. It, he stamped our original plans, but because we now have a full set of, of the whole building set, we have to get a stamp from fire, from hydrants, from green, from ADA, from planning, from Bureau of Engineering, from Bureau of Sanitation. So everyone, you know, and this is a regular thing, right? You, you, you go, you usually show up to the public counter, you show them what you have. And actually, you probably make an appointment, go to your plan checker. He says, come on Wednesday. He looks through a few things, a few items, and he stamps it. Takes you maybe a couple of days to get one department to stamp off. These guys are taking a month. We're we're now going two to three weeks in our schedule for each department to restamp. 
And we have, I think out of the five, we have two. So we need three now. And, and so, you know, we're, we're now saying, well, we have to wait till probably end of January before we get all our stamps, maybe even into February. But now because of the pandemic, we may not be able to start because of the eviction moratorium. So, you know, we're, yeah. we're kind of stuck again. I'm, I'm curious, have you had developers or seen cases where the developer sues the city? It, it has happened. You know, and I always have developers who are contemplating, but no one really does it. But I know there was a developer that was, that the city knew once he submits a project, we're going to get sued, regardless of the outcome. <laughs> Doesn't matter. And he just made it a point to always sue the city. And so his projects kind of started, depending on who it went to, sometimes they would get fast tracked just to kind of not get sued. And the city was tired of him. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There's, but he is on a list. I know an engineer at, at the city who did say his projects come in, most people just put it to the back burner because he's on a troublemaker list. And so you say, oh, you know, so anyone who works with those, with that guy, it's hard to get things through. So what he does, he sues and, you know, then it gets moved. So it's yeah, kind of, got, huh? yeah. And Austin, we've got, we've got, I'm sure there's more, but I know of one in Austin right now that's fairly small developer. He was trying to just basically do a subdivision from one lot into two and the state came in and has tried to kind of, I don't want to say take control over Austin's development department, but move them along a little bit. They, you know, it's, it's, it's not unlike what you guys deal with. Right. Yeah. So, and we're in Texas, it's not supposed to be this way. Yes. So the state came in and, and did some stuff and the city kind of has thumbed their nose or, you know, kind of said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll change the way I, we do it to call it something differently, but they're still essentially doing the same thing. So this guy did go ahead and he finished the subdivision and then he filed the lawsuit and he's not asking for any damages or anything. He's asking basically for the city to follow the law. Yeah. And uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. It's good for him. I mean, the city of LA has been sued so many times and has, has lost a lot. Yeah. There's a case number and I have it in my, in memory. It's city planning case, 1986. 0863. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and it's, it's an assembly bill AB 283. What the city was doing back in the 80s was their zoning was all over the place, right? They had residential zoning and public facilities and freeway on ramps or, or you know, right of ways. People were saying, well, you have all this crazy zoning everywhere with different rules depending on who owns it and who doesn't. And the city would, would defend it. Until somebody, I think actually the state came in and sued the city of LA and said, clean up your act, fix your zoning. Mm -hmm. There can't be rules where people have to figure them out every time on a, on a, on a individual basis. And so then the city after that 80, whatever the case number, the AB 283, they fixed it. But as the city usually does, they, they, they fix a problem and create a dozen more. And yeah. they're doing that now. They're doing a, a thing called a recode, recode LA. And they're taking the entire zoning code of the city of LA and replacing it with this new code. So there's going to be a lot of headaches. Probably we're trying gonna, to do that as well. Well, in five years, we're going to more or less feel the pain. Ours is about to go through and then... Some of the neighbor, we'll call them the neighborhood representatives. I don't really know what, what they came in, what title under, but basically sued the city to stop the, the yeah. new land development code. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've read some of it. They do try to get rid of a lot of the hurdles where sometimes it, it could be an administrative project. So they've added administrative mm -hmm. use permits and things like that, where you could get someone at the staff level to sign off on it and then have the, the, or at least do the first tier approval and then the, the head of the department then do the final approval. But I'm not sure if they've, if it's going to help <laughs> because there's a litany of, 
of regulations that they've added to it. And yeah. so you're like, well, it may, but it may be easier to just go through a condition use permit because now you have to track down the persons who are signing off these, you know, administrative projects. Yeah. And they're not only doing that, but they're doing the regular caseload. So it just becomes an issue. And so, you you know, you hope that it's going to get fixed, whether it happens, I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're we're in a in a slightly. I mean, LA is a grown up city and has been a grown up city for a long time. Whereas Austin is, we're still we're still working under the land development code that I believe was done in '86 okay. when we were a town. <laughs> <laughs> when we we were a town of three hundred thousand, and now we're a city of a couple million. Yeah. So Austin has grown up, but we're still kind of driving in the back seat of Dad's car, or yeah. riding in the back seat of Dad's car, so to speak. Yeah. Thinking about and, uh, it. Yeah. Yep. And so, so kind of the purpose, you know, and, and everything's changed every, you know, now density is a thing and people want things or certain people want things to be more dense. And so what it is, it's the, it's the battle of density, really. There's so much involved, you know, God bless you for the work that you do. There's dealing with the community, the cities. And I think, like you said, the, the master persuasion, there's still that help human element that's involved that, we all need to take into consider on how to work together better. And there are a lot of boxes and paperwork to fill out. It's kind of annoying, but to practice some empathy that it's empathy that, you know, I've, I've find it does work a little bit better. You know, we all developers need to make money, but some of our projects has gone a little bit better. I literally, I've, I sold books door to door. So I have no qualms about knocking on strangers yeah. door. So I'll just go talk to them because I've just found that if you don't and you send out the radius maps and people look at it and it goes, WTF is this? I don't like this. What is this? And then yeah. they come out and all the the people that come out only have negative things to say. So, so yeah, there's a lot of massaging and things to maneuver. We thank you for your time. Are you ready for our lightning round? Sure. Lynn, you want to start us off? I'll start you off. Okay. okay. I'm going to caveat, I'm going to caveat this question that the answer cannot be an architect. So if you weren't doing what you are doing now, what would you be doing? So in a whole different business, a whole different business. I think I'd like to be in the bar restaurant business. Really? I don't know why. I always find that every time I think about what would I like to do aside from, I always go back to that. I always kind of say, <laughs> I'd like to have a little bar restaurant where it has a nice little patio with a roll-up glass door people sit out there congregate i interact with everyone i'm a people person i could talk up a storm all day long and i think that that'll fit me <laughs> and it's awesome. that sounds absolutely horrible to me but i more power to you yeah and i've heard <laughs> horror stories about owning restaurants and and i've worked with some restaurants help them get their liquor license but i don't know why i hear horror stories all the time but i'm always thinking it, you know, I think I could do it differently. <laughs> I probably will never do it, but I think, I don't know, uh, uh, owning a little restaurant and not, not a huge menu, small items. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone socialized. I'd like that. Yeah. What is your, what is your favorite app? My favorite app? I don't know. I think I, my favorite app, that's a good one. I don't know if I really. But what's an app that you use the most that's not email? Well, you know, you got uh, well the regulars, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, right? I, I catch myself on the Apple News app a lot. You know, I'm a kind of a news junkie. I'm always kind of just what's what's going on in the world. So maybe that because okay. Facebook, I don't think really counts. Yeah, or, yeah, cool. cool. Then you got another one. Another one? Yeah. When you're not when you're not working, what do you do for fun? When I'm not working, what do I do for fun? Probably play with my kids, play with the dog outside, <laughs> walk around, talk to neighbors. You know, I don't really have, I don't really have hobbies. You know, I have a couple of little classic cars kind of mess around with, but I'm not a mechanic, so I, I'm limited. So, but if I was a mechanic, I'd probably be tinkering a lot with those cars. I mean, that's what YouTube's for, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it, surprisingly, it works. It, it does. Works. But, you know, it, my time is always cut short so I'm always doing something or whether it's you know actual work work or doing something in our house we're remodeling something we're you know I'm helping my parents do some work or an uncle or a 
brother or something. But for the most part, I think, you know, most of my time is, uh, you know, hanging out with the kids, making sure that they, you know, have a presence of their dad. And, you know, we, we, we play around and joke around and dance and sing and things like that. So, you know, I'm a big singer. So I'm always good. Last one. Not not a good singer. (laughs) That's okay. Yeah, exactly. All right, Jason. Last one. What's the worst advice you've received in your career? The worst advice. I don't know if I've had bad advice because even when it's bad, you learn something from it. I would say that I made a very awkward comment once from a higher up when they, when they said, when, you know, we're merging with the, with between Stantec and the Keith companies, one of our managers came out, the guy who the, the, the office principal, he came, comes out and he says, uh, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I, I don't know why or what came over me. I just blurted out. It may be a train. <laughs> to this day, I have people who I used to, you know, work with at, at that company who still say that was the most awkward <laughs> joke you, <laughs> that I've heard in a long time. And I, and I still remember. And I say, yeah, that was pretty bad. I don't know. It just popped out. I guess the question, though, is was it a train? No, I think the company was a very good, perfect company. But there was, you know, locally there were some issues. But I don't know about bad advice. I don't really have any. No, that's that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Fernando, thank, again, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. You're the key, the key master, the master of persuasion. I like and that. Fu- a future barkeep. So that's right. Uh, you got future tons of stories, I'm sure. You, <laughs> that you, you know, of all the different projects that you've gone through and good and horror stories, I'm sure. So yeah. can't wait to hear more about them. Yeah. So with that, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. All right, guys, you guys have a good day. This has been another great episode of Shovel Ready. Please subscribe and consider working with us. Follow us for more tips and let us know what you think of the show on Instagram at Jason underscore Shovel Ready.